So this morning, we're going to talk about how to overcome guilt by faith. Guilt. And I would guess that some of you here this morning, because you've, you've not yet come to the place where you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, Lord, and treasure, I would guess that some of you are right now today under a cloud of guilt. Because you know you've sinned against God. You know you're not trusting Jesus and his death on the cross to pay for your sins. And so you know that you are guilty under God. You're, you're not sensing any relationship there. There's no peace. There's no sense of acceptance. You know that you're guilty before God. You're living under this weight, this cloud of guilt. Now, we're glad you're here this morning. We've all been there. But our hearts go out to you because you don't need to stay under a cloud of guilt from the God of the universe. And that is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago, paying the guilt of sin, paying the penalty of sin, rising from the dead like we sang about this morning. Because of what Jesus Christ did, the moment you turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, as all-satisfying treasure, all your sins will be forgiven. All your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins, and the cloud of guilt will lift off of you, and the pardoning, loving, accepting love of God will pour out upon you, and you'll be a brand new person, a brand new creature in Christ. That could happen to you today. Let me tell you the story of how this happened to one of my heroes, George Whitfield. George Whitfield, in the 1700s, lived in England, and along with John Wesley, they preached throughout England, and thousands and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. But what I want to read you is what he experienced when he was in his 20s. Here's what he wrote in his journal when the weight of guilt lifted off of him. Here's what happened. Here's what he says. This is from his journal. He says, but oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. So before this happened, he had a weight of sin that was resting upon him, this guilt of sin. And he says, because of that, his soul was disconsolate, which means not consolable, could not be comforted. So he was weighty down with sin. His soul could not be comforted, but then he turned to Jesus Christ, put his trust in Christ, and the weight of sin, that guilt, lifted off of him. The love of God poured upon him, and it says that he had joy that was indescribable and full of glory. Now that's what you can experience. If you are not yet trusting Christ, that's what you can experience because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And if you are trusting Christ, that's the kind of thing you can experience regularly throughout your Christian life as you confess your sins, as the Holy Spirit convicts you and you confess your sins, you can have a taste of that as well. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning, how to overcome guilt by faith. How, how do we confess our sins before the Lord? And where I want us to turn is Psalm chapter 51. 
This is my go-to passage. When I am being convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, and I I can sense there's guilt, I'm feeling far from God, this is my go-to passage. I would encourage it to be one of yours as well. Psalm 51. So let's start with this first question. What's the background? The book of Psalms is a book of worship songs that the people of Israel sang before the Lord, covering all different kinds of spiritual conditions, situations, and this is one that was written to help us confess our sins. It was written by David. Here's what we see. Look at the title at the very beginning of this psalm in your Bibles. Here's the title you will see. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he, David, had gone into Bathsheba. Now here's what situation is going on. King David was a godly man, faithful to the Lord, loved to worship, loved to write worship music, loved to lead his people, faithful to the Lord, obedient, trusting him. But there was a season in his life when he let his guard down. Don't let your guard down. No matter how strong you may have been, do not let your guard down. David let his guard down down. And we don't know all the details, but he was in his palace and he looked out the window and he saw Bathsheba bathing in her home. Now Bathsheba was married to Uriah, a soldier, one of David's loyal soldiers who was out on the front lines battling, defending Israel from the Philistines at that moment. But David saw Uriah's wife bathing and allowed sexual thoughts to rise up in his soul to such an extent that he said to a servant, get her for me. And the servant went, summoned her. David was the king. She came. David slept with her. She became pregnant. And then to cover up, David had her husband Uriah, his faithful soldier, killed so that David could marry her and it wouldn't get out. Now, it appears that David then just tried to keep on going as if everything was was usual, was fine, but everything was not fine. The Holy Spirit was convicting David. There was this cloud, this weight of guilt that was resting upon him. The joy of the Lord was gone. No sense of peace with God, his Father. No sense of abiding relationship. No sense of heart fullness. He was empty, far from God. Guilt was resting upon him. But he was trying to keep up the front. And then in mercy, God sent Nathan to him, a prophet. And Nathan called him out on his sin. And David broke and confessed his sin. Asked God for forgiveness. And was completely forgiven and restored. And that's what David writes about here in Psalm 51, how he prayed and asked God for forgiveness. How did David confess his sin before God? And that's what I want us to look at. I want us to go through Psalm 51. And as I studied this passage, I found eight crucial parts, not necessarily in this order, although this order is fine, but eight essential components of asking God for forgiveness forgiveness, how to confess our sin before God. So let's go through these. The first 
right there in the first line of verse 1, he asks God for mercy. Look at what he says. Very simple. Have mercy on me, O God. Now, what does that mean? Why is that so important? Well, think about it. If you're asking God for mercy, that means you are seeing that there is nothing in you that warrants God's love and favor. Nothing in you that deserves it. You're seeing that you've sinned against God. And all you're bringing to the table is your sinfulness, which deserves God's judgment, right? And so if God is just, if he does what you deserve, you're going to be destroyed forever. And that's why David says, mercy. I'm asking you for mercy. Have, have mercy on me, O God. I, I have nothing to recommend me. I have no righteousness that makes me good enough. I have no goodness that warrants this goodness from you. I'm just simply casting myself at your feet and saying, have mercy on me, O God. Now, this is really important because I would guess there's many churchgoers who've never tasted of the forgiveness of God, who've never felt the weight of guilt lift off and the pardoning love of God come because they've, they've never cast themselves at God's feet, at Jesus' feet, and said, I need mercy. If you don't give me mercy, I'm undone. I need mercy because I've sinned against you. And if you come to God wanting forgiveness, thinking that well, I'm not as bad as Sally, or you know, I've never been unfaithful to my wife, or you're kind of listing up some of the compensating factors. You will not be forgiven. Because the only way we can be forgiven is if we come and say, I need mercy. I'm casting myself at your feet saying, have mercy upon me. And, and the beautiful thing is, when God the Father hears those words, and when he sees that in your heart, he's running towards you with his arms wide open. He never turns away a plea for mercy. He will put away pleas of self-righteousness. He will always hear pleas for mercy and draw you to him. Do you see that? So ask yourself, have you and do you regularly come before God and say, have mercy on me. I need mercy. There's nothing in me to warrant your favor. I need mercy. And every time we pray that, God smiles. He says, I am all about mercy. So that's where we start. Ask God for mercy. Second, he asks God to forgive him for sin's guilt. That's the end of verse 1. Look at what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, that language of blotting out transgressions has to do with forgive me for sin's guilt. There's guilt that I have because of my sin. Blot out sin's guilt. Blot that out from me is what he's asking God to do. In other words, forgive me for sin's guilt is what he's saying. Now, this might raise a question in your minds. I hope it does. Very important question. Here's how I phrased it to myself. When David first put his trust in God's mercy, years before this, he was completely forgiven for all of his sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, because of what Jesus would do on the cross, right? People in the Old Testament saved exactly the same way people in the New Testament are. They didn't see it as clearly, but it's through Jesus. But all of his sins were forgiven. And you, 
The moment you turned and put your trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, all of your sins were forgiven, past sins, present sins, and future sins. So if all of David's sins had been forgiven, and if all of your sins have been forgiven, why do we ask God, forgive my sins? Do you feel that question? So here's the answer. I was talking to Jan about this last night. She said, you're making it too complicated, so I'm going to try really hard to... And if it's too complicated, it's because I'm not clear enough in my own mind, okay? So let me try to explain it this way, see if this helps you. The reason we ask God to forgive our sin is not because we must confess every specific sin in order to be forgiven. That's not how you were saved. When you first put your trust in Christ, you didn't have to go back over and remember every single sin you'd ever committed and ask God to forgive you. You said, forgive me through Christ, and you were forgiven, right? So please, some people get confused about this, and they are in fear about this. If you die, and there is some sin you haven't confessed, and you've been trusting Jesus, you're forgiven for that sin. Okay, it's very important to understand this, because when you put your trust in Christ, all your sins were forgiven. Okay, so then why do we ask for forgiveness? Why does Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, Tell us to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Why do we pray that? It's because when we confess our sins, what we're asking God to do is give me assurance that my sins are forgiven. When we say, after having been saved, forgive me for sins, we're asking, give me assurance that my sins are forgiven. Because if you are convicted about some sin and you don't want to confess it, if you're being convicted of some sin and you don't want to turn from it, then listen carefully. You have no reason to think you've been saved. You can't have any reason for assurance of salvation at that point because saved people confess their sins. You may be forgiven and saved, but you can have any assurance of it at that point. You can't know. So when we come and we say, forgive me, we're saying, Give me assurance, because if, if you've put your trust in Christ, you've been born again, and then the Holy Spirit can convict you of some sin, you feel this weight of guilt start to come, and you say, Father, I'm here, I'm pleading for your mercy once again. Forgive me for my sin, I'm confessing this to you. And then the weight of guilt lifts off, and the parting love comes down, and you are assured, because you're confessing your sin, that your sin has been forgiven. That's why David asks for forgiveness of sins. And that's why we should ask for forgiveness of sins because our asking forgiveness of sins will bring us assurance that we have been forgiven for our sins. So, David comes and says, blot out my transgressions. Forgive me for my sins. And that's what we do. We come before God and we say, forgive us. Because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, give me a fresh assurance, Lord, that I'm forgiven and he will. The very fact that you're confessing it, that can give you assurance right there. And then when the weight lifts off and the love comes down, assurance increases even more. Third, this is so powerful. He asks God to cleanse him from sin's power. That's verse two. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Oh, he wants to be washed clean from the sin that he has 
committed and it's upon him. Now, I want you to think carefully about this. It's not enough to want to be free from sin's guilt. It's not enough just to say, well, you know, I, I, I don't like the fact that I'm guilty. I'd like to keep sinning. Just would you lift the guilt off of me? That's not what confession is. Confession is lift the guilt off of me and free me from sin's power. Now, to illustrate this, let's go back to our, our bread illustration. Our theme verse for this series is John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Okay, see all this bread here? It's just brand new bread, okay? I'm the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. So what Jesus is teaching us in that verse is that we all have heart hungers for joy, for peace, for pleasure, for security. We all have heart hungers. And what he's saying is that he is the only one who can fully satisfy our heart hungers. And so when you turn to Jesus Christ, when you see him as the bread of life, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that he promises to be to you, and you turn to him and you trust him, you'll, he'll just start feeding you, you'll just start eating, you'll be full, you'll be satisfied for the first time. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You're forgiven and your heart is satisfied in knowing Christ. You're worshiping him, beholding him, trusting him, loving him. Okay, so where does sin come in? Well, see, sin's over here. Sin's this little dried up, moldy scrap of bread, okay? And, and, this, and every sin is saying, I will satisfy you. I will satisfy you. I'm the bread of life, okay? And so we turn and we, okay, take a bite. Doesn't really satisfy you that much, okay? But that's what sin is. Sin is telling you it will satisfy you. And when we do sin, whatever it might be, then there's this barrier of guilt that comes. We're, we're not feeling the joy. We're not feeling the acceptance. We're not experiencing peace with God. There's this weight of guilt that's upon us. We turn back to Jesus, but there's something amiss unless we come just like David does in Psalm 51 and, and humble ourselves and repent. But here's the thing. If we're holding on to our sin and we're not liking the sense of guilt, and if we say, please remove the guilt, I just want to hold on to the sin though, okay? That is, free me from the guilt, but not from the power. Free me from the, the guiltiness of it, but not from the presence of it. You will not be forgiven. That's not what forgiveness is. You need to, to put that down and to say, help me. Free me. Forgive me for the guilt and wash me clean from the sin itself. Cleanse my heart from the sin itself. Now, this is not easy to do. If, let's just say, for example, if you've been bitter at someone and you're not forgiving them, you're clinging on to the bitterness because it just kind of feels good. It kind of satisfies a little bit of hard hunger just to just kind of nurture that grudge against them. You know how that is, right? Well, to think of forgiving them and letting that go can be very painful. But so you say, Jesus, help me, wash me, cleanse me, and his power will come upon you. You'll see more clearly who he is. It's like, what am I doing holding on to this? This isn't going to satisfy me. And you let go of that and you turn back to him and you feed. So it's not easy, but that's why David prays, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the beautiful thing is he will. He will. No matter how strong a hold sin has on you, no matter how much it feels like it's got its claws 
into your heart and will never let go, those claws will loose from you. When you simply say, wash me, cleanse me from my sin, help me, I'm pleading for your mercy, I can't do it, he will move in and free you. So guilt will lift off and sin's power will release from you. So he asks God to cleanse him from sin's power. I mean, just what a Savior we have. Think about how beautiful God is in his mercy in Christ. We've sinned. No excuse for our sin. He's the bread of life. He's everything we need. In our pride, we turn from him and we start feasting on this little moldy stuff over here. It's, it's tragic. It's evil. It's wicked. It is. And he is so merciful. He sent his son and punished his son so we could be forgiven. Jesus came to the, went to the cross so we could be forgiven. And when we come and say, mercy, forgive me, lift the guilt, free my heart from sin's power, he will. Every time, he will. Love Jesus. Love God for his goodness and mercy to us. Fourth. He admits his sinfulness before God. Okay, this is, this is really important also. And here's why. I've heard many people say, maybe you have said this, that you believe God can forgive you, but you have a hard time forgiving yourself for what you've done. Now, let me talk about that a little bit. That phrase is not found in the Bible anywhere. It makes me think, okay, so what's going on here? What are we saying when we say we can't forgive ourselves? Let me share with you what I think is going on and see if this makes sense. When you say you can't forgive yourself, it's because you are angry at yourself for what you've done wrong. You're bitter at yourself for what you've done wrong. You're saying, how could I have done that? And you're mad at yourself for what you've done wrong. And I would just appeal to you that what's behind that is that you are proud and you are not willing to admit that you are have a sin nature. You're not willing to go there and just say, I have a sin nature. I did something terrible. I did. Because when you humble yourself and you acknowledge what the Bible says about us, about you, about me, then that pride, that bitterness lifts. You say, just, I've got to humble myself before God. I come to you. I'm a sinful person. I have a sin nature. Forgive me. And you won't struggle with what we call forgiving ourselves. So that's what David does here. Notice how he humbles himself before God in verses 3 through 7 and admits that he has sinned. Verse 3 says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he doesn't water it down in any way. He doesn't call it mistakes. He doesn't say, you know, I, I, I flubbed or I, what else do people say? I did, a, anyway, it's a transgression and the root of transgression is rebellion I've rebelled against you, God. He doesn't whitewash it or water it down. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, David had also sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, right? And yet David knows that sinning against God is so much more serious, as horrible his sin was against Uriah and against Bathsheba, his sin against God is even more consequential. So he, has, he has to start by getting things right with God. Against you, God. I'm seeing you. I've sinned against you. I've sinned. 
Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that his mother sinned. He's saying that he was born with a sin nature. We are sinners by nature and by, by choice. That's what he's acknowledging. He's admitting that before God. But see, in the next verses then, he doesn't stop with his sin nature. Verses 6 and 7, God's power can set him free. So he's growing more and more and more righteous and holy. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That is, you can bring your power upon me and cause wisdom to be birthed in this sinful heart. It's like being born again. So purge me, wash me with hyssop. Hyssop is a, is a branch that they used in the temple. And so purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So verses three through seven, David is admitting his sinfulness before God. Oh, and listen, it is so, it, it is kind of counterintuitive. We, we like to kind of keep our self-image positive, but, but that can keep you from the full joys of knowing Christ. If you will just humble yourself and say, I've sinned, no excuse. I've sinned against you. Have mercy through Christ. Forgive me. Change my heart. Cleanse me. Oh, you will be feasting. The joy that will come when you humble yourself and acknowledge your sin before God, as counterintuitive as that seems, when God's love pours out and the, lift, and the guilt lifts off, be worth it all. So, Grace Church, be free, be quick to confess your sin before the Lord as sin. Fifth, he asks God to restore heart fellowship with him. Now, here, here's why this is so important. You've been feasting on the Lord, you've been walking with him, and then you, you drop your guard and, and you start to sin. Okay, you're feasting over here, you're sinning against God. Now, when you turn your back on God and start to feast, God will lift his experienced presence off of you, right? He will lift that joy off of you. He'll lift that sense of peace with God off of you, and you'll start to feel like something's wrong, something's amiss, Right? The fellowship's not there. The closeness with God is not there because this is God's love for you because he wants to convict you of your sin. He wants to point out that there's something wrong. So pay heed to that when it comes. And what David does in verses 8 through 13 is he says, restore heart fellowship with you. I want to be back where I was before, where there was the joy and the peace and the sense of your presence and the sense of your nearness. Restore that to me. So you look at how he does that. Verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. His joy and gladness was gone. The joy of the Lord was no longer in his heart. And this was God's mercy to lift that joy off so David would realize there's something amiss. And listen, it's God's mercy in your life when he lifts the joy off of you because he wants you to know that something is amiss. So David says, restore that. And he says, let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Guilt can be so heavy, it's like your bones are being broken. It's painful. But Lord, let those broken bones rejoice. Restore me. Restore that heart fellowship. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. He's just repeating his request. Forgive the guilt. Give me assurance that I'm forgiven. Verse 10, oh, I love this prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. This is so encouraging. Listen, you do not have the power to make your heart clean. 
You do not have the power to change your own hearts. Christianity is not a bunch of people who've decided they're going to be good. And we're all here working on trying to be good. That's not what Christianity is about at all, because we can't. We are too sinful for that. We've got to humble ourselves with the reality of that. And then we say, create in me a clean heart, O God. And when you pray that meaningfully from your heart, he will pour his spirit out upon you. You will feel the cleansing taking place, the power of sin lifting off of you, the, the clutches of sin, those claws releasing, freedom coming. Oh, and we can experience that again and again and again and again and again and again through our Christian lives. When was the last time you prayed, make my heart clean? Cleanse my heart, please. I'm feeling just this sin is in my heart. Bitterness against this person or lust in this situation or impatience here. Wash my heart clean. When was the last time you prayed that? Oh, if it's been a while, you've got a feast. You've got a, a rich experience coming up to come before the Lord. Have mercy on me. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't think that what this means is that in the Old Testament, God just brought his Holy Spirit upon believers temporarily and then would lift him off at any time. I think it's the same as in the New Testament. When you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's there. He's going to keep you persevering all the way to the end. So what's David praying? I just think David is acknowledging that because of his sin, he deserves to be cast away from God's presence. He deserves to have the Holy Spirit taken from him. But God, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Don't take your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit. And, and as David prays that prayer, he will be assured God has not and God will not. You're right. You confess and you're assured because only saved people confess. Only people who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them permanently confess their sins. And so he's assured. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Again, when was the last time you said to God, God, I've lost the joy. Restore it to me. I can't restore it. I can't change my heart. Restore joy to me. When is the last time you did that? Did you realize you could ask God to give you more joy in him and that he will when you do? He will when you do. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So what's that about? I think what David is praying is restore heart fellowship to me and then I'll be able to be back back in the saddle, leading people to Christ, back in the ministry, bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, restore heart fellowship. I long to be out there sharing the gospel with people, bringing people to faith in Christ. David was an evangelist. Do you see that? Then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. So David was an evangelist. We should be as well. Okay, so David asks God to restore heart fellowship with him. Sixth, Verses 14 and 15, what does David do? He repeats his requests for forgiveness and restoration of heart fellowship. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, of my, o God, o God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. Okay, now why does David repeat his requests? He's already prayed that. I think what that shows me is that this confession, asking God for forgiveness, this is... This is important. This is not just like something you say while you're heading out the front door on your way to work. Bye, hon. Oh, God, forgive me. Okay, let's head to work. It's not something like that, okay? This takes focus. This takes 
effort. This takes some concentration, and this means you repeat it. And I think David's repeating it because he's not feeling it yet, right? The joy's not coming yet. It's going to. Press in. Perseverance, persistence in prayer is important. So keep praying. Keep pressing in until heart fellowship is restored. So important. Seventh, reminds God of his promises, verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And then here's the promise. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, before we look at the promise, one question this verse raises is, why does David say God will not delight in sacrifices? Because after all, God had commanded sacrifices, right? Remember in the Old Testament, if you had sinned in the Old Testament, you would bring an unblemished lamb to the temple and present it before the priest, and the priest would say, put your hand on the lamb's head. You'd put your hand on the lamb's head as a picture of your guilt being transferred onto the lamb. Then the priest would have you cut the lamb's throat. The lamb would die as a picture of the lamb being punished for the guilt of your sin. That's what God commanded people to do. Now, That didn't forgive any sins. The book of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But what that did do is it pointed ahead to Jesus. It just really struck me yesterday. All through the Old Testament, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of pointers towards Jesus. I mean, just thousands. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look ahead. Look what the Messiah is going to do. I mean, all through Israel's history, all of Israel pointing ahead to the future. Now we can look back and say, okay, that's all part of history. And then there he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's Jesus' death that pays for sins, and the Old Testament sacrifices were commanded, but they didn't take away sin. They pointed to who would take away sin. Is that clear? Okay, but still, why does David say you won't delight in sacrifice? I think his point is that God will not delight in sacrifice if it's not accompanied by a broken and contrite heart. In other words, if you in the Old Testament just took the lamb and cut its throat and whatever, okay, and just, you know, done, you leave, God will not delight in that. That's not a pointer to Jesus. That's not what it's all about. And if we come and confess our sins before the Lord without a broken and contrite heart, then God is not delighting in our confession, and we won't leave with assurance of forgiveness. So the promise here is that if we come, when we come, with a broken and contrite heart, God will pour out heart fellowship. He will lift the guilt. He will restore the assurance that you had. Now, one important distinction. Sometimes we feel broken and contrite regarding our sin, not because we've dishonored a God of infinite glory, but because I was caught, because someone else saw me right? And don't confuse the two. If the reason you feel bad for your sin is because people know now or because you were caught, that's not the same as I've wronged your glory. I've profaned your name. I've dishonored you, glorious Jesus. I am sorry. That's a broken and contrite heart. Do you see the difference? Okay, very important. And when we are broken and contrite in heart before God for our sin, 
we can be completely assured that sin's been forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross. And he's going to restore heart fellowship again. The love's going to come. The peace is going to be restored. He's going to do that. So that's the promise. So David reminds himself of this promise. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. He reminds God of that promise, not because God needs to be reminded, but because when we remind God, our faith gets strengthened. Okay, last, eighth. This is a puzzling one. He asks God to do good for his people, verses 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So why does he ask God to do good for his people? I looked at some different commentators, and the answer that made the most sense to me was this. David knew that his sin could bring harm to God's people. Not just because he was king in a position of authority, that's, that dimension is there, but even more because God's people are, are, are a corporate body. We're, we're, the, we're the body of Christ. And so we here at Grace Church, we are a body. And what the elbow does affects the rest of the body. And what the ear does affects the rest of the body. And so when we sin, we're a body, and, and it can have effect on the body. So we pray, oh God, do good to your people. Do good. Pour out your spirit upon my brothers and sisters. Don't let what I've done bring harm in any way to your people. Increase the work of your spirit. Then you'll be praised. Then you'll be glorified. Then you'll be honored. So I would encourage you to make that part of your prayer of confession as well. Okay, eight points. Do you see those? Now, what does this mean for us? There's lots of implications. Let me just land on one. And I want you to feel from this how important, weighty, serious confession of sin is. Some of you maybe have seen how important it is, and confession of sin is a regular, meaningful rhythm in your life where you pursue this, and you sense the guilt lifting, and the pardoning love of God coming, and, and it's a regular rhythm. Others of you, I would guess, it's become too casual. It's like, well, God, forgive me. Okay, what's on TV? It's not how it works. Let me illustrate this. This week, I was looking at a, a blog post I'd written about forgiveness of sins. Just, what was I saying then? I wanted to see, you know, don't leave anything out that's important here. And I noticed a comment that I'd never seen before on my blog. And let me read this to you. Here's what this reader had, had responded to this blog post about how to confess sin. And I thought, I've got to share this with the church because I think this will be helpful. He said, I, I kept all of his spelling the same. He says, I don't think I ever felt a prayer was answered in my life until I read this and asked God to make me feel the guilt of my sins when I asked to be forgiven. Because one of the points I'd made in that blog post is if, if you're not feeling sorry for your sin, ask God. Change my heart. Help me. Help me to, to confess now. Help me to repent now. He will. That's an important part. See, he does everything we need. You need more faith? Strengthen my faith. He'll strengthen your faith. You need more brokenness over your sin? I'm not feeling broken sin. He'll give you brokenness over sin. Everything is ours through the cross. We just bring needy, empty hands and say, if you can help me, help me. He will. Okay, so let me read that first sentence again. I don't think I ever felt a prayer was answered in my life until I read this and asked God to make me feel the guilt of my sins when I asked to be forgiven. 
This is a great way of describing what you are really doing when asking for forgiveness. Rather than just saying the words like reading a script, sorry for this, sorry for that, yada, yada, yada. Is that like any of our confession? Sorry for this, sorry for that, okay. Instead, he says, for whatever reason, it took me until tonight at 28 years old, being a born-again Christian, to really think about what I was asking for and who I was asking. It had become too routine. Thank you for reminding me what I'm really doing when I ask for forgiveness. Has it become too routine? Have you forgotten who you're talking to? Have you forgotten what you're asking him to do? Grace Church, don't let confession become routine. Come before the Lord. Take these steps we've laid out. He will lift the guilt off of you. He will pour his love upon you. He will restore fellowship. It's a beautiful thing, and it's all through Jesus' death on the cross. That's yours. If you have not been regularly confessing sin meaningfully, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you've been settling for no heart fellowship with God and just thinking, well, this is just me. I'm just not a very strong Christian. You're missing what God wants to do in your life. He wants to lift the guilt off and pour his love in, and the pathway is a regular rhythm of confession of sin. Now, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I plead with you. Turn to him right now and trust him. I mean, look at his love for you on the cross. Look at the beauty of his mercy in paying the punishment that sinners deserve. Look at the power and the victory of his resurrection showing that what he did took place. Right now, turn and put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, and as your treasure. And as you do so, guilt will lift off of you. You will not believe it. Love from God, assurance of forgiveness will come. Pardon will come. You'll become a new, brand new creation in Christ. You'll leave here changed. We love you. We're glad you're here. That's what we long for, for you. Let's stand together and pray. I pray, Lord, first of all, for those of us who are trusting Christ, that you would strengthen us in a regular rhythm of confession of sin, that when you convict us of sin, we would move into confession and meet you at the mercy seat, meet you at the cross. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that for us who are trusting Christ. And then, Lord, for those here who are not yet trusting Christ, I pray that right now today they would see all that you offer them, all that you will do in their hearts, how you are a forgiving God through Christ, and that they would turn from their sin and bend the knee before Jesus as Savior and Lord and treasure and be forgiven and be restored and be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name.